Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans and episode 122. Hope you are staying well. Hope you're staying healthy. Um, it's been a few weeks since we recorded today's episode and, and still uh, with the new Delta variant going around, uh, we ask you please to get vaccinated if you have not yet already. And even if you have, uh, please continue to wear your masks. Uh, our children who are under 12 are not able to get vaccinated. And it's just a nice, kind thing to do uh, for those in our community who are immunocompromised and still may need your help in keeping everybody safe. Uh, today, my guest is somebody who I gotten to know earlier this year through our work um, in the community as, as all these you know nasty things were happening. And uh, he's everywhere. Um, his name is Eric Toda. He's an executive uh, at Facebook. Uh, but more than that, he is a father, uh, just like I am. Our, our children are very similar in age. And he has gotten really involved in the community with the work at Stand With Asian Americans, uh, the Asian American Foundation, uh, with the new Smithsonian um, Asian uh, Council. And there's so many new things that are coming on that Eric seems to be in the middle of. And so uh, I hope you take away uh, so much greatness and, and so much inspiration from my conversation with Eric. I know I have. Um, and so without further ado, really excited to share with you this conversation with my friend and my brother, Eric Toto. Welcome back to the Asian Americans, everybody. Hope you are doing well and hope you're staying healthy and safe uh, foremost in, in what continues to be one of the most challenging times for uh, so many, not just Asian Americans, but Asians globally, uh, with, with what's going on around in the world. Um, we hope that you and the ones that you care about are, are doing well. Um, there's a lot going on in the world, and there are many different ways, I think, that we can empower ourselves to combat the anti, combat the Asian hate that is rising, um, to donate to certain causes and to rally different groups of people so that we can collectively make an effort. Um, I, I think if anybody has been in any sort of activism, we have to realize that there are going to be many, many different fronts uh, to making sure that we get the results that we want. And so uh, my guest today uh, is somebody who is, you know, fighting the fight uh, with his influence, with his relationships and with his voice uh, more than anything. Uh, and so really, really excited uh, you probably have seen him all over Instagram and especially LinkedIn. Uh, can't go a day without hearing about what Eric is doing. So uh, really, really happy and excited and so geeked out to share this time with my friend Eric Toda today. Hey, Eric. Hey, Jerry. Thanks for having me on, man. So excited uh, to to have you. Um, I've seen enough uh, video and I'm sure many people have. Uh, I think I can like picture the background of your home office with a Kaepernick jersey and some of the other stuff in the background. Um, yep. Uh, how are you doing? Yep, yep, yep. I, I struggle with that answer. Um, you know, half of me is optimistic that people like you, people like Benny Liu, Bing Chen, Tammy Cho, are pushing us forward and having a conversation and making sure that we are using this, who knows, maybe finite window of opportunity to rectify a lot of the stereotypes and stigmas and tropes that were placed on our communities that have held us back, you know, either in the workplace or in society at large. But the other half of me is still very angry and very hurt by turning on the TV every day and continuing to see the violence that is happening against 
our community. And more recently, you know, I'm a father of part Asian and part Jewish children, you know, and there's a rise as we're literally recording this, there's a rise in anti-Semitic violence happening in the States. And you're starting to see a lot of parallels and it's just terrifying. And so I think the fight continues to fight. Um, it's a worthy fight for us. And it's one that I am proud to say that I can tell my children that I fought alongside you. I fought alongside you know, all the great leaders and voices that are part of this and hopefully pushed us forward. You know, and so there's a bit of a mixed feeling that there's optimism and but also a lot of pain and, and anger that, you know, you can't go a day without seeing someone that looks like you get hurt, you know, get harassed, you know, get subjected to an injustice. And so um, that's agree, why man. we have and to continue to fight, man. The idea, because what I'm doing here on the show and what I'm doing with the different uh, platforms and, and speaking that I'm doing um, is in a way inherently selfish. Because uh, we're trying to create a world better for our kids. We're trying to create a world, a different world. You know, I, I said on a panel one time that I'm doing this so that our kids don't have to talk about this. And I was gently nudged by um, uh, yes. somebody far, far wiser uh, than me. Uh, and he said, actually, Jared, you need the kids to talk about this. You cannot let them not talk about this. But you have to get them to talk about this in the past tense. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, that, that just hit me so mm -hmm. hard because I think sometimes we try to erase the pain for our kids in the same way that many of our parents don't talk about some of the stuff that they've seen that they've went through. And so we need to make sure that they can talk about this mm -hmm. in, in the past tense and to make sure that we make something good out of these experiences. And so a uh, quick shout out to Sydney Kanazawa, um, who's the incoming president of Napaba, actually, um, who shared those thoughts with me. And so shout, shout out to much, much wiser people mm. than me. Um, so you have been very, very yeah. active and very, very busy uh, in the community. I think most people <laughs> learned about your work and your passion uh, with the initial uh, Adweek article that you wrote in early February. As, it, as we sit here now, um, you're on the advisory board of the newly formed the Asian American Foundation. You're a part of Launch um, and so many other initiatives. But um, I, I want to learn more about the origin story of Eric and, and the Toto family legacy and, and, and the identity. So share with us how the Toto sure. family became Asian American. Well, um, I don't know a lot. I don't know a lot, um, but I do know a little bit. And I'm a bit ashamed to say I don't know a lot, but that's because, one, a lot of our history was lost, at least the photographs, the books, uh, were lost in the internment camps of, you know, the 1940s. Um, but also, you know, my grandparents were very strict that they would not teach my father, my aunt, Japanese. They would not talk about Japan. They would not talk about all these things that would, back then at least, get them thrown in jail or get them thrown into a camp. So a lot was lost. But I could tell you this, just taking a step back. So... I'm fourth generation Japanese American in California, so pre-Gold Rush. So my father was born um, in Chicago after the internment camps, mm. but he was raised in, in San Francisco. My grandfather was born in Watsonville, California. My grandmother was born in Watsonville, or my, my grandmother was born in Monterey. Their parents 
were born in Monterey. And then their parents, yeah, their parents were the ones that came to uh, America uh, pre-gold rush uh, to Central California to be farmers. And so I have a lineage of farmers in my family. Um, and, you know, we can't, you know, I'm very, I guess you could say I'm very American. I'm probably most American than most people, um, which is which is crazy to say. But, you know, I don't speak Japanese. Um, and that's because they didn't teach that because they, they felt that it would put me at a disadvantage. My mother, so I'm half Japanese and half Filipino. My mother um, is an immigrant from the Philippines. Uh, she was born in Manila. Um, and then she came over here when she was a little girl. And so, uh, do I know Tagalog? I wish it'd be super helpful uh, to be honest with you. Um, but I wish that every day that I, I could at least speak Japanese or at least speak, um, Tagalog, but I, but I don't, um, I grew up, <clears throat> I was born in Hawaii, uh, in Honolulu. Um, but we moved here, uh, a little bit under when I was under five and I grew up in a town in Northern California called Moraga. It's a very, it's a very homogenous, affluent white town. Uh, I was one of the few Asian families that grew up in this town. And um, I was raised in a very much an upper middle class lifestyle, you know, amongst all these, amongst all these, you know, very wealthy white families. And I could tell you that up until February, I always thought the racism in my life, the discrimination I've faced in my life, the injustices, I don't, I don't even call them justices because I, I, I thought it was all normal. I thought being called names and the whole slanty-eyed thing when you see people, you know, and the assumptions like, oh, this is just what it's like to be an Asian person in America. And as, I've, as I'm walking back from February into, you know, my origin story, if you want to call it that, um, I realized that I've always really struggled with my Asian-ness, at least. You know, growing up in an all-white town, you know, you get told all the time that you're different. You get told all the time um, that you don't look like everybody else. You open up your history books and you don't see, you know, our, our history, the Chinese Exclusion Act, the internment camps. You have to learn about that from other people, you know, from your own grandparents. So therefore, these kids that you're in class with are like, well, you're not in our history books. You're definitely different, man. Like you, you definitely don't belong here. And you get told that every single day from when you're a little kid and then you grow up and then you go look for a homecoming date, you go look for a prom date. And, you know, there wasn't a ton of Asian girls in my town. There was all white girls, you know, and they say, no, Eric, I don't really like Asian guys. And you're like, okay, well, I'm now even more different and I potentially hate, you know, what I look like. And then I go to San Francisco and I go see my cousins and my friends that live in the city, which, you know, is a very Asian city. Um, and they themselves say, hmm, you're not Asian enough, you know, because of where you're from, how you talk, you know, how you dress. Um, and they used to call me uh, white man Eric. Um, and they used to make fun of me about that. So my struggle with Asianness has always been on this stretch, spectrum of how Asian am I? and I've always been very proud to be Asian or to, to look like how I do. I've always been proud to excel in my career as an Asian American because I was a, part of a, a select few that, that are in the industry. Um, but I've never really spoken up for any Asian American causes up until February. 
And the reason why I did that, like you alluded to, the reason why I wrote that piece was because it just got to the point where I realized it wasn't normal and it's not normal. And I sat there watching the Super Bowl with my kids and they loved the commercials because they're flashy and, you know, they're happy. But it struck me as how are they going to run these spots when last week, the week before the Super Bowl, there were five straight attacks against people that look like them, against people that look like me. And how are these brands not going to acknowledge that? Not, how are they not going to acknowledge, acknowledge death? How are they not going to acknowledge uh, injustice? After an entire summer, literally an entire summer of saying just how anti-racist they were. And so I brought it upon myself to say, you know, I've had a, a really good career in marketing. I'm very grateful for the successes or at least some successes that I have had. But you know what? I'm going to put, I'm going to just get out there. And maybe I sacrifice my career by calling out my industry. Maybe I sacrifice who I am and my reputation in my industry by, by calling these people out. But I'm going to do it because I just cannot let, and like you said, I just cannot let my children face the same level of injustice and racism that I faced you know, when I grew up, because I, I, I just looked at them and I was like, no, I'm not going to let them, I'm not going to let them live like that. I want them to have, I want them to have a conversation for sure about what happened, like past tense, like you said, but I want them to have a different conversation. And if I can make any type of impact in their lives because of what I've done in my career, what influence or power that I potentially can wield with agencies or brands, then I'll do it. I'll sacrifice everything to make sure that they, they never, ever have to deal with that. And so, um, in February, I wrote that piece, and <laughs> your life changed. <laughs> then, my, then my entire I, life changed. Man, uh, and what you just shared, I think if we if we talk about even some of the things, we could probably stay here for five hours, which is so exciting to me because I think there's so much richness in what you share. Uh, a couple of things that come to sure. mind is I think um, you're not the only person. Um, you know, I was born in Korea. I came here when I was eight. And so I already had the language and the culture and my parents didn't really have the choice not to teach it to me, but you're not the only one, right? There's so many people in our generation whose parents decided for them that they weren't going to teach them their own language and, and culture in, in, in their well-intentioned effort to mm -hmm. quote unquote, help us assimilate, which they didn't know at the time was we're going to try to make mm -hmm. our kids mm -hmm. white as possible because maybe carrying two languages is going to be a yeah. disadvantage you know, without even thinking about that, what that would mean to our identity. Like, how has that changed for you? Because now you're raising mixed race children with three different cultures, um, with the opportunity to learn perhaps multiple languages, mm -hmm. even to call that, right? So how do you view, mm -hmm. um, and then now we're just going into the two dads talking about their kids part of this conversation. Like, how, how do you and your wife think about that? Like, and, and has that changed based on your own experience? I mean, I want them to love who they are. Like straight up, like I, growing up, man, I, I struggled. I struggled so hard with who I was, um, as an, as an Asian person with my identity, with my own community, um, my place in all of that. And I, I, I just, I just don't want them to, I don't want them to be raised like that. I don't want them to feel like that. Like I, well, let me tell you this. So when my wife and I decided to build a nest and start a home, there's a bunch of different places that we could have moved to. And we were moving from Santa Monica back up to Northern California. And I did made, we made the decision that we were going to move 
to the place where I grew up. And it's very easy for me to say, no, we're never going back there. I don't want my kids to, I don't want my kids, you know, to, to be subjected to that. But to me, at least I thought in my head, at least in like, maybe in like the smallest sense, maybe I could help change that place. Maybe I could add a splash of, you know, caramel colored brown, you know, into that, onto that white piece of paper. And maybe, maybe more people like, like us will move. And that's one that's turned out to be true. And the second thing is it's the way that we're raising our children is to celebrate who they are and to, to teach them Japanese. My wife is a quarter Japanese um, and she speaks, she speaks Japanese. And so it's very important to me that they understand their culture. It's important they understand uh, their Filipino culture, their Jewish culture, their German culture. It's, it's really important for me to under, for them to understand just how proud they should be that they are many cultures and not just one. And I want them to celebrate that because to me growing up, I was always ashamed of all the cultures I was a part of and that represented me. Um, and all I wanted to be, you know, like you said, was to just to assimilate, just to assimilate that just to, just to, just to kind of like morph into the background. Like I didn't want to be different. I wanted to be the same. And I never, ever want my children to be the same ever. Like that's just not, that's just not what's, what's driving me in, in, in parenting. You know, it's funny you bring that up because I think that's an additional burden that people of color in this country face that we don't ever talk about because you're, you're still in the corporate world. I, I don't know, gratefully left mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. excitedly left a couple of years ago. But I, re I remember coming out of grad school and, you know, you, you, you recruit everywhere, right? The options are, are so bountiful. And certain folks of color did not specifically recruit at certain companies because they didn't want to go work eventually where their HQ would be. Whereas our white friends are like, oh, I'll go there. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great opportunity for me professionally. And the fact that you don't have to think about how you, your family, or any, you know, you be treated, that's privilege. The fact that we have to worry about, oh, like, totally. how racist is that place? Totally. Or, you know, is there going to be, and, and I had the other experience. Yeah. I grew up in Fullerton, right? That's, it's super Korean. And so I want to have a little bit more diversity mm -hmm. in my child's children's experience than what I had in, in my city of Fullerton because it was almost homogeneous the other way, right? And so even thinking about that is, is additional stress and anxiety that many Asian American parents think about. And I think yes. particularly in the general areas of where you live and where I live in Northern California or Southern California, there are still many in our community who think that they just need to get into the best zip code regardless of color, get into the best situations physically regardless of thinking about identity. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. because they think that it doesn't, the color doesn't matter. Right. And, and, and that's for me personally, I don't want to speak for myself. I, I think uh, they have not yet realized that the next part that I want to ask you about, because when you were talking about growing up and, you know, girls telling, you no, there, there are so many of us and especially in the environment that you grew up in where your parents were telling you not even to learn Japanese to uh, help you quote unquote assimilate better. Right. It's, it's this, it's with this sort of intent that mm -hmm. they want you to be measured for your own merits and not the color of your skin, which is fine. Except I don't think people realize that that can only happen if nobody judges you by the color of your skin. But exactly. you, can't, you exactly. can't prepare yeah, your exactly. kids to live in a world where you can't pretend that your kids are not going to be judged by their skin because they do. And, and that's a fact. And it's not just skin. It's religion. It's gender. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, different sort of abilities. And, and so at this point, 
why not empower and raise children in a way, like you said, where they're going to celebrate their own uniqueness and to learn about how their friends are unique in their own different ways. And that's, I think, what we're hopefully, one of the conversations that we are bringing to the surface with all that's going on is for folks to finally not think that a certain logo, whether it is academic or corporate, will shield them from any of this because nobody cares about that before they hit you in the face. Exactly. Yep. That's one hundred. I mean, that, that's 100% true, man. I think like <laughs> we worry about so many things, right? We worry about so many, so many things and minute details around who's going to see us, what, what we're going to look like, um, who's going to judge us for what. But the minute that you're in, you're faced with, let's just call it harassment, injustice, discrimination, they don't care. They're not going to ask you, Oh, Oh, Jerry, like, Hey, you went to USC, right? Okay, cool. I'm not going to, I'm not going to hit you. Right. They're not going to say that. They're going to be like, Oh, Jerry looks like that other Asian guy and I'm going to punch him. Right. And so therefore I think this is a, a rather violent and sad unifying mechanism that's happening across the Asian American community right now that honestly, just looking more insular, everything that has always divided us. And again, um, I, I am somewhere on the spectrum of Asianness because of, 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 of how, what I experienced, but I, I do see this. There is a level of East Asian versus Southeast Asian versus South Asian, and all of that is slowly being unified because to an attacker, to someone that wants to perpetuate an injustice, they don't care. And I think we're all seeing that now, that all the things that have divided us are really, really small, and that's why this generation at least my generation, your generation, we are unifying together and not seeing ourselves as yeah, I, I, one race or another or one one nuance or another. And that's where we have to remain hopeful, right? Because um, you have young kids, I have young kids, and I think that's really just focusing how we want them to experience the world because you're right. I, I mean, the way you said it is exactly how I have to explain it to some people. I, I've read the reports and, and you know seen the videos of people getting punched in the face and worse. Nobody asked them where they went to school, where they work, how much money is in their bank account, you know, what what private school they send their kids to. And yet so many in our own community are living under this false belief that privilege will shield them from racism. And in fact, I would say that more privilege gets closer to racism, but you'll never hear it because it's a different kind of racism in country clubs and it's a different kind of veiled racism in corporate boardrooms. It's not blatant, but it's there. Oh, it's definitely there. It's definitely there. And I think, you know, as I've risen in my career, you know, to levels of executive and I've been on corporate boards and been in boardrooms. I could mm. tell you what's there. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's obvious, right? You walk into a boardroom and you know, you, we look young um, and someone says, Oh, Oh, you're DoorDash. Like, uh, what are you dropping off? Are you dropping off food for the board meeting? And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm the, uh, I'm the marketing representative for the board meeting. I'm, I'm on the board. And they're like, oh, sorry about that. Um, or even to the levels of behind the closed doors where, oh, you know what? I don't think Eric is um, <sighs> is exec- is VP material because, you know, he just doesn't, he just doesn't speak up. And I just don't think that, you know, honestly, I honestly think that, uh, that he's probably, he probably feels good where he is. You know, and I think that's yeah. when that's when the whole model minority thing comes in, right? It's like there's these assumptions that continue to hold us down. But I could tell you, um, I've done 
And there are many like me in my industry, Nick Tran at TikTok, Marvin Chow at Google. We continue to fight this fight to say, no, this is not who we are. We do speak up um, and we're, we are ready to lead and we've been leading. And so I, you know, I, I do think that the racism that we face as we continue to climb the ladder and continue to step onto each step moving upwards um, isn't as blatant, but it's certainly there. It's 100% there and you feel it all the time. I, I think it's, uh, we have to see it as progress, right? It, it's, it's a perhaps an endless, but we have to believe there's some finish line marathon that we just don't know where it's going to end. But let's talk about your work for a second. How did you choose marketing? What, cause you've, you've done, mm-hmm. I'm going to brag on you for a second. Cause I don't know. I don't know how comfortable you're in bragging about yourself, but Facebook, <laughs> Nike, Snap, uh, Airbnb, I mean, household, household names and uh, the companies that you've advised and, and have been involved with uh, far exceed just the short list that I mentioned. How did you fall in love with that? And when, when did you know that that's how you wanted to make your name professionally? God, this, I mean, by accident, to be honest with you. Um, in 2008, I decided after taking the LSAT and getting good scores, I decided and applying to law school and getting in. I decided I'm not going to go to law school. I'm, you know, I'm going to test the job market. This is 2008, man, and I'm sure you remember that. Um, it was the worst <laughs> recession of of the decade, and and as a law, as a as a triple major, political science, criminal justice, and psychology, <laughs> I pretty much only could go to law school. And you know, obviously, you can imagine my parents were not happy with that. But I applied to 200 plus jobs, and literally the only job that that called me back, that picked up the phone and, and wrote me an email back was a company called Facebook in 2008. Wait, can we tell the young people how 2008 Facebook was like? <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, Facebook was really small. Like, re- I'm talking really small. It was like less than 500 people in the company. There were about 50 million users. Um, and to be honest with you, there was a company called MySpace that was bigger <laughs> than it, another company called Friendster, that was bigger than it. And a company that you may not remember to these youngsters, uh, a company called Yahoo that you used to go search and, you know, it was, was kind of Google before Google and Yahoo was trying to buy Facebook. And everyone thought it was honestly like the, the, the you know, like a, like a fleeting thing. And so my parents were like, please, please do not take that job. Um, and I, and I told them, you know what, if Facebook is intended to fail, like you, you believe it is, um, that's fine. You know, as long as I'm here for like three months and save up some salary and save up some money and I could buy my girlfriend a wedding ring. And I joined Facebook on the advertising operations team. So any of you in the ad business may know this. When you buy an ad, there's someone, there's always someone that has to put the ad live. It's not just machines. There's always someone. And I was that someone. I was the someone that Microsoft wants to buy some ads. Nike wants to buy some ads. Amazon wants to buy some ads. It goes through the sales team and it gets delivered on my desk. And then I have to set up the ads and put them live. That was my first introduction to marketing. Um, it was the most entry-level position. It was very it was very monotonous. You copy and pasted lines of code and that was it. But I loved it. I loved seeing Nike. I loved seeing Microsoft. I loved seeing Starbucks, you know, in my inbox. Like, oh my God, this is my job. And ultimately we roll out other products uh, where they can then take advantage of like having a page on Facebook. And it was my job 
to go help them understand how do you use Facebook versus how do you just do commercials. And ultimately, that was the advent of what many call digital marketing, social media marketing, influencer marketing, whatever you want to call it. Um, that was the advent of it. Like it's, it very much started, you know, as these products started rolling out. And I just found myself falling in love with the art of storytelling through these mediums. And whether that was, you know, taking a 30, the 30 second video and telling a beautiful story about, you know, a new Nike shoe for, you know, LeBron, you know, it's just, it, 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 it just attracted me. And, you know, I fell in love with it. Um, and I found myself in marketing by accident and it sounds super cliche, but it is by accident. And, I didn't know I was going to be good at it. I still don't think I'm very good at it, um, but it's something that I really love, and I I, I constant and I respect it so much that I constantly find myself new opportunities to hopefully build my skill set. Like these brands that I've been a part of, Nike, Airbnb, Snapchat. Those are all for me new experiences that hopefully allow me to learn more about marketing, so I can become I, better at it. I, I think it's just incredible because I think when people think. Of, of any company, right? We, we think of it in present day terms. And, you know, they're like, wow, well, you know, the only company that called you back is one of the biggest tech companies. No, back then it was different, right? Like you were taking just as much of a risk it, the other way around. It was different. It was um, different. And so that, that is really, really fascinating. Yeah. Um, and, and you've done a lot of other things, you know, working for uh, a different social media company down here, <laughs> TikTok and, and up in Portland at Nike. How do you think, and you just mentioned the, the power of storytelling, how do you think all those experiences prepared you or did you realize through those experiences that you yourself, Eric Toda, could be the storytelling platform to enact change in our community? I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. I'll tell you that, Jerry. Um, I will tell you this. Nine, most people, when they go into doing what I'm doing, what you're doing, you don't know how much impact you can make until you until you're forced to do it. And what I realized in speaking up was, you know, through my journey coming from the Nike's, the Airbnb's, the Snapchat's of the world, you build yes, certainly a great portfolio of work that you're very proud of, but you also build a level of experience, network, um where and and respect and reputation where to be quite honest with you when i decided to write that piece in adweek i didn't decide that for myself adweek and co uh cohim uh from from adweek reached out she's like eric it's i think it's time for you to say something because one i am an asian american in the marketing industry which sometimes sounds like an oxymoron um but two no one else was doing it and so for her to validate and say, you know what, I, I think it's, you know, I think you should write something. And for me to mull over it and say no, and then yes, um, I think I, I think during that moment where I was mulling it over, I was like, I think some people will listen. I think some people will listen because I've met them, you know, they've I've been on panels with them, they know my work, and hopefully I've done enough in my career where this will actually make an impact. So I actually didn't know I was going to make a tremendous impact. Um, and as you know, being in an industry, you launch something on a Friday night, that's a death sentence, man. Like no one's going to see that. And so I was really worried that, again, I wrote this, you know, heartbreaking piece for me to write and that no one was going to see it. But luckily for me, it did what it did and it, and it made its way around the world. So um, I didn't, I never knew that I, I would ever be able to enact this much change. I think the coolest part about that story, and, and you're being awfully humble about it, man, is that they found you that they sought you out because 
they knew that you'd be the, uh, the proper person to write it. And so that goes to sharing with so many people that are listening that a lot of the people that you're hearing now, um, and I know that we're taught to be humble, but even for myself, like I've been doing this for a long time. And now this is the moment where people are asking us to come because they know mm -hmm. that we can. We're not judged by what the last piece that we wrote or the last speaking event that we did. We're being judged and being asked because we have a body of work that makes people comfortable and confident and that we can speak for and about our community in, in, in a very contextually positive way. When did you, so, but mm -hmm. you went, so that was February, right? Um, we're, we're sitting in the middle of May now. The last 90 yep. days have com completely life-changing for you. Um, <laughs> when did you decide that you yes. wanted to be the guy and take it, right? Don't be humble because you are one of the most visible folks in our community right now, especially in the world of business, connecting the dots, showing up to places, encouraging other people with similar privileges and access and relationships to do even more to make sure that we can fight this from all angles so that this is not a flashbang, that this is a lasting change. As you mentioned earlier, you hope that it wasn't that you hope that this isn't temporary. We're all feeling that way. We're all desperately anxious of thinking, mm -hmm. how do we make this permanent? And then we've seen with some of the people that have been getting involved, with some of the dollars that are involved in these movements now, and politicians and other business leaders, that we hope that this time it's different and that it is really permanent. But when did you decide, you mentioned earlier too, that you knew that there would be some social and political risk on your end, professional political risk on your end to be as vocal? Um, I myself have the privilege that I don't have a corporate boss, so I can say whatever I want. Sure, there are you know uh, pros and cons of both, but you know when did you decide and and how did you get to that decision? I mean, I was when I wrote the piece, I I was very hesitant to even bring it to my boss. Um, his name's Jed Clevenger. He's at Facebook. Um, he's a a white uh, a white ally. Um, a good friend, and mm. I was expecting him to say no. To be honest with you, uh, when I brought it to him, and he and he just looks at me, and he's like, "No, I, th I think you have to ask yourself if you're not if you don't do it, who will?" And mm. I couldn't come up with any names to be honest with you at that time, and especially from our from my industry. Um, and he's like, "Well, you kind of have to," and then he's like, "I'm going to go raise this to another level." So he brings it to another level, and it goes to his boss, Judy Toland, who is a black ally, a, an amazing leader. And she, she's like, nope, this is going to run. And I realized I had these hesitancies because, again, like you're taught to stay silent. You're taught to not speak up. And even my own parents, when I was telling them I was going to do this, they're like, it's too hot. You can't do it. And so I, I myself doubted that it was even going to go through. So I was telling the story in my head, like, be prepared to, for, this, for this to get shut down. Don't be disappointed. Keep doing your job. But it gets cleared. And so we launch it. And I thought that was it. I honestly thought when I launched it, that was going to be it. I spoke up, you know, for my community in my industry, and that was going to be it. But what I found from that, as it made the rounds and made its way around the world, um, people started reaching out. People started saying, thank you. And you, you know this, Jerry. You see someone shows up in your LinkedIn inbox or your DMs that looks like you. And says to you, I've been, waiting, I've been waiting so long for someone to have your face, 
represent <laughs> us. You know what that feels like. And you start to, you feel a certain way, man. And you're just like, what is this? Like, how, how, did, how did this happen? But the one moment, the one moment that fundamentally changed who I was forever, it's on my Instagram. Um, if you want to see it, it's just at Toda. Um, and I'll tell you the story about it. You can imagine where I'm standing right now, <laughs> Jerry, in my office. And I was doing my first live broadcast uh, for local TV. And I tell my kids and my wife, I was like, hey, you guys got to be quiet, okay? Daddy's, this is the first time Daddy's going to be on TV. So, so, so go in the other room. And I'm doing this broadcast with Heather Holmes on, on KTVU, Fox. And I'm going through my points. This is why I wrote it. Here's what I want to see. Here's, here's what I hope that will change in my industry. And I get this text message from my wife. And it's a picture of my son watching me as, as I spoke, uh, watching me on TV. And it was the most powerful thing I've ever seen. Sorry. I, and I realized at that moment, mm. I can never put this back in the box, that this is something that I am now. Like, I have to do this. I have to do this not for the people, you know, hitting my DMs and not for the people, you know, liking the pictures or anything like that. And, and, and you know, to be honest, not, not, not even for you, Jerry. Um, but now, oh, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. not true anymore. But yeah. I wanted to do it for my kids. And I, I refused at that moment. I refused at that moment to only let my kids remember me at the end of the day as just a marketer. And my entire career has always been for marketing. So when I saw that, I realized that I have to do this using every skill that I have, every experience across every brand that I've ever worked for, for good, not just to sell shoes or sweatshirts. And even though that was good training, this is now leveraging every single skill that I've had and made and used to make these brands famous, to now make our community famous, to now make these, these, these points, what we want changed famous. And that's why I think to be quite honest with you, mm. I can't go back, yeah. man. Like I'll continue to be a marketer for sure. And I'll continue to strive to be the best marketer I absolutely can be. But now I'm a marketer plus this. And I don't think I'm ever going to change that because again, every time I look my kids in the eyes, uh, I just want them to, to remember, hopefully, that I fight for them That's every beautiful, day. That's beautiful, man. I, I'm, I was staring at the photo as you were sharing and there, there's no other... It's hard to explain. I, I walked away from consulting from WeWork, uh, deciding never to go back for similar reasons, right? Like, how am I going to look my kids in the eye when they're old enough to understand what the world really is and confidently say that this is why I leave you every day? This is why I jump on planes to go do things. Like, how am I making totally. the world better for you? Mm -hmm. And it can't be making other people millions and billions of dollars. It can't be just that, right? And so I, I think, yep. you know, you're in a unique position because it's not, there's, there's value and there's purpose and there's power from where you sit professionally to encourage other people and to rally other people to do more. Um, even even the title of the, the initial Adweek uh, piece that you wrote, 
is my people are dying in silence. How does that not move you? And Mm -hmm. folks, people, this was February 11th that this was published. This was more than a month before Atlanta. And so I know the community has changed so Mm -hmm. much since Atlanta, but because of Eric's work and because of the amplification of so many other stories. And if you follow me on LinkedIn, like I've always been loud. Um, I got louder ever since I left the corporate world, but I've been loud and it's been so cool to see. uh, And Eric's always been loud. It's been so cool to see the hundreds of other people feeling comfortable in getting loud about their experiences Mm -hmm. and their identity on a platform that has traditionally told us to keep your identity at the door because there is no identity at work, that at work, it's just business that you're not supposed to talk about politics, religion, and now identity at the workplace, because that's a taboo topic. I will tell you, and I'm sure Eric would agree, and we don't do it for the vanity metrics, but this is just an indication of how much resonance there is with the audience. Our follower accounts gone up, right? The number of listens on this very podcast, the very many of you who are listening because of the impact of the amplification of our stories. And I'm sure you know, the folks where you work, Eric, can track all of this for us and the Asian American brands that have, you know, grown in size over the last like 60, 90 days, like people are finally willing to listen to us and they are ready to listen to us. And we've always been Mm -hmm. here. We've always been loud in our own way. And how are we going to sustain this energy and this voice, I think is the, you know, the, the, the puzzle and the riddle that we're all trying to solve. Um, And so, for, for you, from where you sit, you, you are on the board of uh, Launch, uh, Leading Asian Americans uh, United for Change, um, which is an amazing organization that has been the author of the new status mm-hmm. report, uh, the social tracking of Asian Americans in the United States report. Um, you are on the advisory council of the, uh, uh, the Asian American Foundation, the Asian American Foundation. Um, how are you seeing leveraging your business relationships, your business acumen with other executives and business leaders to impact culture, business culture, so that we can leave a better world for our kids. You know, I was having a conversation back in April with um, a new friend, but turned out to be a really good friend, uh, Dave Liu, um, of Paired. He's the co-founder of Paired. Um, but he organized that mm-hmm. Wall Street Journal ad buy where all, all the executives signed their names. I was one of those names. Um, and one of the things that showed me was that, and this is just speaking for myself, I've been extremely selfish in my career to only focus on myself. And a lot of people have told me otherwise. They're like, no, no, like you just did what you had to do. But I've been extremely selfish. What was what was my portfolio? What are the brands? You know, how do I continue to rise and be cutthroat to make sure I continue to rise and and beat out all, you know all, all the people that I was that I was you know that I was up against. But what that signaled, what Dave put together, signaled something, a larger awakening across our community, and that's yes, we've always focused on ourselves and and our, and our own singular success, but now it's time to use that. For good, now it's time to use that to push our community forward, to show representation, to use our influence with the media, <clears throat> with publications, to tell our stories, 
Because for a long time, we told the stories of our companies, we told the stories of our brands, we told the stories of our work. And now it's time to tell stories of us. And there's more and more attention being paid to the stories of us. Who are we? Where are we from? What do we believe in? What brands have we been a part of? And I think all of us are doing that now. You know, you're seeing 10 million committed from Dave um, and that Wall Street Journal crew. You're seeing 250 million from Jerry Yang and Joe Tsai and the entire TAF organization. This will continue. This will continue because this is an awakening in our community, at least. And really, I believe an awakening in our society where you're seeing marginalized groups. You're seeing groups that have been victims to injustice and discrimination now speak up and the people to that within those groups who have found some levels of success now saying, oh, wait, we also have political capital. Oh, wait, we also have influence. Oh, wait, we also have the ability to change things. Let's go do that. So I, I will say <clears throat> I'm proud to be on the board of, of launch because I think that study uh, is so important. And we were just in front of Congress talking about that study and why having that data will help provide legitimacy to what the congressional leaders are hearing, but also help them with policy changes. I also believe, you know, with the work that we're doing with TAF, we'll fund a lot of historically underfunded nonprofit organizations that advance our community, and that's what needs to be done. And I'm also, I'm also proud to say that I'm using, you know, all these, my experience and my business acumen and any success that I've had. You know, I joined Dave Liu and the Hyphen Capital Group to invest in Asian American founders and entrepreneurs, and not just East Asian, I'm talking South Asian and Southeast Asian. And I'm very proud to say that for decades to come, I will be an investor in Asian American entrepreneurs and businesses because they need a route to succeed, but also I'm willing to work with them to be better storytellers, to tell their story and to get out there so they could break stereotypes for, for us. And it's not just me or the, the other people that, that signed that. So I am hoping that this is a watershed moment in which we just kick the door down and the door will never be put back on. All right. If you thought your DMs were busy now, Eric, now you're going to get every Asian American entrepreneur sending you their decks. Go, go. <laughs> go, go, go to Dave. Don't go, go, go to me. Go, go to, to Dave, Dave first. Please. Go um, to Dave. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's it's been really, really inspiring to see uh, Dave, you know, um, I, I'm I'm in the uh, the Stand with Asian American Slack group. Uh, shout out to Dave and Wendy and uh, you know yes. my, my yes. young yeah. Eric Kim from Goodwater and all those folks doing amazing work in their own way. And I, you know, mm-hmm. I I would have to hope that I think everybody needs to realize that they can do advocacy and activism work without having those two A's be their primary job title. And I think that's the big difference this time that yes. I think we've always historically pointed to the people with the picket signs, the people that are, you know, working at nonprofits and, and, and doing the, the street work, right? The, the marching and the on the ground work, as we say. But the realization is we can all do it, right? Because I always share this message with, you know, folks who mm-hmm. still work at companies when, when I go talk, like, I'm the external guy and there's a lot of things that I can do and I can say that you can't, but there's a whole lot of things that I can't ever do. I cannot change policies in the workplace. I cannot change how we invest money in large organizations because I'm the outside person, right? And so 
we need certain folks to stay within their large organizations to make partner, to make CEO, to become Congress people, to become mayors, school board members, all these institutions, because we also have to understand how the game is played in this country. Yes. And those with power get to control the lives of so many. Totally. So I am so excited to see how we write the next chapter of Asian American yes. history when those people who've been fortunate enough and blessed with resources, financial, political, and other things that they're coming together and saying, how do we point the cannon at the next problem together, right? Because I think some of the questions that other people may have is, hey, mm -hmm. man, 250 million sounds like a, a whole big number, right? Like, but how are we spending it? Like, how does that, how does money equate justice, right? How does money equal all these things? But I'm hearing saying that is so much opportunity for us to come together to say, okay, yes, we need education, right? We need none of us learned about Asian American history mm -hmm. in school. And even if we did, it wasn't done with the right context because guess who wrote the textbooks? Not us, right? So we, it starts there. It starts with, exactly. you know, uh, bringing up the marginalized of the Asian American community. 25% um, of Asian Americans living in New York City live below the poverty line. But thanks to the modern minority myth and the media, we don't think about mm -hmm. New York City Asians that way. So we need to bring up everybody. And I think we need to attack this from, so many different angles. And so um, I, I'm glad you are where you are. Um, you know, I, I, this is, I have to believe that this is a permanent change in our community. And I, I say that, I, I want to say that with the hundred yeah, percent conviction, man, but there, there is still this built in ingrained fear, right? That, you know, just like, uh, like you said earlier, we're kind of on Black Square anniversary day, right? June 2nd. Everybody did a Black Square and thought it was a good idea. And we haven't heard from half the company since, right? But what we also need to make sure that that doesn't happen for our community as well and for all the other marginalized communities is for everybody inside of these large organizations to keep on the pressure to of their executives, of, of the people who make these decisions. Exactly. And vote with your feet, vote with your dollars, and to mm -hmm. make sure that you're not going to stand for organizations and institutions that will make anybody feel unsafe and marginalized as you know as long as they are customers or employees or otherwise and so i mean you know I, I think you know big business obviously uh has a lot to do to rectify some reputation and some impact that uh rightfully so that they get criticized for um but to ignore that in getting out of these tough times and to create permanent meaningful change i you know, uh, I, I I will probably say that I, I think we need their help and we need business leaders help to do this because to ignore them and to mm -hmm. demonize them isn't going to help anybody. No, totally. Totally. And, you know, I've, I've gotten some DMs here and there, that people saying, Eric, like, what happens next? Like, are you going to just do this full time? And I'm like, no, I, I can't do this full time because like you said, I need to continue to do what I do in my own industry to one, make change, but two, it creates, and this is why, you need to continue to do what you're doing. I think other people in other corporations need to continue to do what they're doing is because it's the it's your bully pulpit. And the larger your bully yeah. pulpit, the more success that you have, the more influence that you can wield and the more change that you can make. And that's why, like, no, I'm not going to do this full time. It's going to be a part of me for sure. But, you know, I will continue to strive to be an incredible marketer, you know, and put out good work because the, the more good work I put out there for my industry, 
There's sure. no more say I can have for us in our community. I think, and this is us just being completely objective and just honest, the places that you represent also give you access into other places that other folks do not have the privilege to get into. And those rooms are where decisions are made. Mm -hmm. Those conversations, right? The panels that you and I and other people get invited to because of where we've worked and because of our relationships, we have to do what we continue. We can have to continue to do what we've been doing to make sure that the message is sustained so that it gets to the people who need to hear it. Because even now, when, when we do these, yes. you know, APAM yeah, speaking engagements and true. panels, guess who's showing up, right? The really fired up people and the lukewarm people, right? The mm -hmm. ice cold people who don't agree with what we say, they don't show up. Does that mean we're going to give up? Absolutely not. We're going to have to keep trying and eventually the message will get to them. And so, uh, and, and I will share, you know, yes. it, it, we're in the thick of APAM. There's so many events going on and, you know, uh, it's hard to keep a track of everything. And almost every day right now, you know, it's the third week of May, May 19th, there's so many events per day. I will ask all my friends who are listening to this, <laughs> if you can't go, share it on your social anyway. Share it on your social because there's one person who might see that and go and just silently observe that might change their life. And that's the power of all the work that we're doing now, mm -hmm. that it's lasting and it can, you know, it can get to people yeah. that may not ever hear these messages because, you know, like Eric said, you know, uh, he is one of the marketing leaders of this Asian American community and movement now. And it's because of his expertise and the lessons that he's learned over, over the, the decades that he's done this uh, to make sure that we can be in a better place. Um, and so I, I am so excited and I want to personally thank you publicly, Eric, because you've been so graceful in the way that yours and my friendship has developed. Obviously, due to COVID, we haven't met before. Our friendship developed on Instagram DM because, you know, we recognized that we were of the same, you know, cloth and <laughs> uh, we needed to be friends and cheerleaders and supporters yep. of each other. And so I, I want to say thank you because uh, you do this without any ego. You do this and you support and you're so active in all that you do. Uh, because of just your passion and your drive to, uh, same mission as me, man, to, to leave this world a little bit of a, a better place for all of our children. So it's been, this has been fun. Um, would love for you to help us finish out the show in the way that we always do, it in has. the form of the Dear Asian Americans letter. And say, you've said a whole lot, you probably, uh, <laughs> this whole episode is a letter, folks, but uh, if you can synthesize into one, <laughs> one last letter, uh, I'll start if you can share with us any parting thoughts, uh, talks of inspiration or anything that you want to share with the broader Asian American community. Um, so I'll start the letter. And if you can help finish, uh, dear Asian Americans. I come today to you all with as much humility as I could possibly have, because again, I'm very new to this world. Um, I found myself by chance entering into the world to, de to hopefully defend us, to hopefully push us forward. But I want to let you know this, is that there are many dark days that we've faced and will continue to face, but we have to understand that this fight has to continue. We can't go back to putting our heads down and be silent. And if people like Min Jae Orms, if people like Marvin Chow, if people like Elliot Lum and Bill Amata have showed us anything, it's that this is a worthy fight. 
this is a fight that we will remember for the rest of our lives. And when our children look back and say, what happened during that time, this larger cultural awakening with so many different groups and communities, what did you do? I want you to be proud to say that you spoke up, that you didn't just let one voice do all the work and all the talking, but you, you joined them. You joined the Jerry Ones, you joined the Tammy Cho's, you joined the Benny Lou's to fight for us because that's what's needed right now. We don't need silence anymore and you're not stronger for silence. You're so much stronger for speaking up. And so continue to share your stories, continue to fight for us, but most of all, continue to fight for my kids. And fight for my kids too, folks. <laughs> this is, in a way, I mean, my kids are four and two now, and they really don't quite fully understand all that's going on. And in a weird, weird way, I know your kids are a little bit older. Um, I'm going to have to explain this to them one day. My kids are younger, three and... Three and two, three and two, Jerry. Oh, three and two. By by the look of the picture, I thought he was a little taller. All right, so they're in the same. But they don't really fully understand what's going on, right? And one day we'll have to. <laughs> one day we'll have to. And no, um, I want them to understand that and and appreciate that um, their dad did something about this, right? That they in in some way, shape, or form uh, mm-hmm. are, are living in a different place. Not a hundred percent of obviously not, but as a small contribution by by their appa and by Uncle Eric and by Uncle Benny and all these folks that I think were running towards something that we quite I'm not sure what it's going to look like when it's done. We're working to because there's never been what we're trying to create. Um, so you know, to to everybody starting projects, uh, writing articles, sharing content. Don't stop. It will it will make sense at some point, and we, we hope that you will find the support and the encouragement that you need to never stop sharing your stories because uh, Eric and I are here to tell you that storytelling does change lives, that storytelling will change lives. It starts with yours. It starts with your families, but it will uh, really impact the lives of so many millions of other Asian Americans who will benefit from your work. So... Um, Eric, I hope you're taking care of yourself. I know it is exhausting um, to to wake up to bad news every day. It is exhausting to feel like we're constantly not doing enough because there's so much to do in this world. And so I, I hope you and, and the rest of the family are uh, taking care and um, resting as you go um, in what has been a a uh, APAM and, and a May and a 2021 that I think we'll remember forever um, as the time that our community fundamentally changed and America fundamentally changed. And so uh, thank you for using your voice, your platform, your megaphone for good um, here to support you and all that you do. And uh, I'm really looking forward to hanging out in person one of these days because that's on the list of things that we need to do. <laughs> yes, please. Yes, please. Um, and thank you so much for having me on the show, man. It's a, it's an absolute honor uh, you know, can keep continue to fighting, keep, keep continue to fight. And, uh, I'm, I'm proud to say you're a friend. I'm so proud. Thank you. Eric might be the easiest person to find on the internet. He's at Toda everywhere. Uh, I guess that's what happens when you work at the place that gives out these usernames. So it's at T O D a everywhere. You can find him, please support his work. Uh, please look at, and we'll put all the links to the organizations that he's involved with, learn about them, uh, support them if you can. And then share them out with your other other friends as well. So thanks, Eric. Be well, and we'll see you soon. You too, brother. Talk soon.
Thanks again to Eric for making time for this conversation when he's got such a busy schedule. Um, I, I encourage you to check him out on Instagram at Toda, T-O-D-A. Um, that's his handle pretty much everywhere. Um, and look at the photos that he we talked about. Um, check out his other work and uh, really support him in his endeavors, uh, encouraging large organizations and other folks to get involved uh, and put political power, put financial power behind our community so that we can make lasting change uh, through education, through the arts, and through community and political activism. You can follow us at Dear Asian Americans on Instagram. You can follow my personal account at Jerry J. Wan. My uh, website is brand new. My personal website is brand new at Jerry Wan, just jerrywan.com. And you can find more information about my speaking and my other uh, work that I do. Uh, thank you so much for, for tuning in. I would be honored if you would leave us a review on Apple or on Listen Notes or wherever you leave reviews for podcasts and would love to engage with you. Hello at theersandamericans.com is our email address and always looking forward to hearing from you. Thanks again for tuning in. And whether this was your first episode with us or your 122nd, I am so honored that you spend a little bit of your time each week listening to unique yet resonant Asian American stories with us here on Dear Asian Americans. Looking forward to uh, seeing you again next week. And in the meantime, please stay healthy, stay safe, and stay happy. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, and I'll see you next time.